hurts. They get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake rule. Cold blood is with the strong scheme. I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss the straws. I'm out of loss. How my brains get busted. Slinging letters into couplets. Muck up the subjects. Paragraph the this is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about snowstorms and about the mild excitement of a potential avalanche, about depression and meditation, about anxiety and exhilaration. I've been thinking about Madonna's song, Like a Prayer, and how life is a mystery, as is, for me, the world of technology and how my phone can do all the things it does, how I'm okay with using it and not understanding how it works, but somehow find the mystery of life a little more stressful. My guest today is neuroscientist Elizabeth Kirby. She is an assistant professor in the departments of psychology and neuroscience at The Ohio State University. Her lab studies neural stem cells in the adult hippocampus. The hippocampus is a key brain area for memory function, and it changes dramatically in response to both beneficial and detrimental stimuli. Her lab focuses on the role of the hippocampal neural stem and progenitor cells in modulating the hippocampal response to environmental stimuli. They are especially interested in how NSPC-secreted proteins can help define plastic versus pathological responses in the adult hippocampus. She's unraveling some of life's mysteries for us, and I'm very appreciative, and I'm also appreciative you're on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So before you explain what all that means, I want to talk a little <laughs> bit about your path getting to uh, having your own lab and, and lab life in general. Um, you started your career at Duke University, graduating summa cum laude with the distinction for your senior thesis in psychology and neuroscience, receiving the faculty honors award, which is the high, I looked it up, the highest honor <laughs> given by the undergraduate faculty to an undergraduate student for excellence in scholarly research. And from that point, you began picking up additional awards and honors each step of the way. And I started thinking about, was science always a calling to you? I'm always interested in people finding their passions. So I, I always liked science, uh, science and math in particular, through, I guess, middle school and high school. Uh, the existence of right and wrong answers appealed to me um, compared to humanities where right and wrong seemed far more difficult to define. Uh, being in science, I liked that there was a right and wrong answer and that somehow I could probably find it. Um, and there were tools to help me find that. And in school, it was studying the book and, and trying to understand things. And then when I got into college, um, I actually thought I wanted to be uh, an MD for a while, a medical doctor, so go to medical school. And I pursued that path pretty closely for quite a while. I was even a volunteer emergency medical technician. So I rode around on the back of an ambulance and treated patients and I quickly discovered that uh, my strength was not tending to the ill, that this was not something I particularly enjoyed doing, and I, I just didn't want to do it anymore, and that's not a good sign, because I was only an undergraduate volunteering. I couldn't imagine getting through med school. At the same time, I had been doing research in a lab. I had started volunteering for research, because that's always a valuable thing. I like science. It's, it's good to go to med school if you do some research experience, and I found I loved the lab. I liked being in a place where there are right or wrong answers but no one else knows them yet. And you're supposed to figure that out yourself using experiments. So, you know, you find a question that no one knows the answer to and you need to design an experiment to find that answer. And I thought that was, I thought it was really cool. I really enjoyed it. I loved what I did. I had uh, amazing mentors in my undergraduate years uh, who helped show me how to do research and made me a better critical thinker and a better researcher. And I, I hated the EMT work. I just did not like dealing with sick people on a regular basis. And so Someone like that should not be a, doc a doctor or a clinician, but I loved the lab, so I decided I would rather go into research. And, were and so you, midway through my undergrad, I changed. Were <clears> you okay with the idea that the questions changed and that maybe even what was right and what was wrong changed sort of under your feet as you dug deeper and went further down the road? I think that was part of the appeal of it, is, is that things, the whole landscape can change. Things that, so the entire field that I work on is looking at these stem cells that are in your brain uh, for a long time, these weren't believed to exist. People were taught 30 years ago that this was not a thing your adult brain had. You didn't have stem cells in your adult brain that would give you new neurons, which are the main communicating cells of your brain. It was called the no new neuron doctrine, actually, and it was taught to people for decades. And it wasn't really until the 1990s that evidence started to emerge that actually, no, there are new neurons and they come from stem cells that are in the adult brain. And so, I mean, that's a whole landscape that changed and it's the field I now work in. 
And I thought that was incredibly neat that we can have this really incorrect idea for so long, but through the power of experimentation and through the power of, of studying biological systems, we can correct it, that it won't just stay entrenched, that we, if we can show, if you can come up with good data and good experiments, you can convince people of perhaps what's really happening in the world. And I thought that was a really cool part of it. And it's what drew me into it. And how easily is that shift made in science? Because it definitely seems like in under in other um, areas of study or in other industries, like that would be a hard transition. People would like put their heels down, turn their backs and say, no, 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 you know, this is the doctrine. <laughs> that was wrong. We, we, we're going to ignore that. Um, is it different in science? Have you found? I mean, there's always resistance. If someone has invested their career in studying something and you're coming out and telling them, no, what you study is just wrong, that's not going to go over well. People are people, whether they're scientists or not. But the end, the end result is if, if you do your work well and others can replicate your work, at the end of the day, usually the system prevails that the truth is what, is what we attach to. And, and it does shift. I mean, the the, the new, no new neuron doctrine, I would say, really had a downfall over probably maybe a 10-year period. It's no longer taught in classes, obviously. I mean, it's just patently wrong. And so it's, it's no longer taught in classes. And it's no longer something that anyone thinks is a real thing anymore. And because you can do this yourself. I did this as an undergraduate. I did the experiments where I could see this happening in a rodent brain. So it's, it's kind of hard to, to fight that. And so there's always some initial fussing and unhappiness and maybe questioning of the methods someone uses. If what you have is really true and other people can replicate it, it eventually will win. It may take a few years, but eventually it will come through. The truth will, will shine through. I had seen in preparation a 2015 TED Talk with Sandrine Theray, and she was talking about growing new nerve cells. And she was talking about a situation she had with a doctor who was a cancer specialist and his patients were experiencing depression after they were actually cured of cancer. And he spoke with her and she said, well, that's probably because their new neuron growth had been inhibited by the medication that had cured the cancer. And he had not realized because he had been taught the old doctrine that that, that can't happen, that, that neurons don't re regenerate or grow new ones. <laughs> and so she was talking about that sort of how he came over to her lab and she showed him and that, you know, this, this kind of shift in his understanding of medicine. And I, I started mm -hmm. thinking then, does that make you as a researcher wonder about maybe other doctrines that you think are rock solid that do you do you question those or you just say, okay, for now, this is what we believe to be true and we're going to go with that. Um, does it shake your foundation at all? I wouldn't say it shakes my foundation. There are things that I believe to be true about biology and about the brain and those assumptions, those things I believe to be true are based on some evidence and that evidence might end up being wrong for some reason, but uh, I, I push forward with what I have and if I end up coming up with an experiment that seems to contradict it, that's when I take a moment to pause and say, okay, what am I assuming here and do I really have cause to question it? And um, is that an exciting point <laughs> for you? Like, is that like, oh, like here a door is opening. Oh, yeah. yeah, they might, might lead yeah, in another direction. Yeah, that's definitely exciting. That's definitely an exciting moment. If you think if you think you've got a reason to question something everyone else has said and your reason is, is based on good data, that's an incredibly exciting moment. That's a great project to be working on and to, to put forth into a paper and to show the world and give them your evidence for why, okay, you all thought this was, things worked in way X, but I've actually found they worked in way Y and here's all my evidence for why way Y is actually what's happening and why way X has to be wrong. So I want to talk a little bit about um, how you choose a lab and then also how you choose your particular focus within that lab. I was intrigued because I was looking at the all the different bios on the um, Daniela Kaufer Laboratory at Berkeley, and you had a little mm -hmm. bio, and it said, Liz graduated from the Helen Wills Neuroscience Program in December 2011 and is now a postdoc in the lab. She works on the regulation of adult hypocamal neurogenesis by emotional information from the basolateral amygdala. Outside of lab, she enjoys baking, triathlon, and salsa dancing. And I just, <laughs> that led me to then go look at all of the other bios. And I, I, I was then really intrigued about the life inside a lab. One, first, let's start with how you choose a lab. But then what kind of it, it's like to be part of the lab um, community? 
Um, so I'll start with, with how you choose a lab. So for your, for your PhD is probably the first time you really choose a lab. Uh, most people who go to get a PhD work in a lab as an undergraduate, as I did. I did research as an undergraduate. That is usually a little more of a random selection because you don't really know what you're doing. You, you email a bunch of professors. You see who will give you space in their lab to let you volunteer and learn from them. Uh, but then when you go to grad school, you really do spend some time choosing it. And in fact, in my graduate program, they have you rotate through different labs. So sort of like in medical training, they have you rotate through different specialties so you can sample them and figure out which one you want to do. You rotate through different labs during your PhD and figure out which one you want to be your final home lab to do your thesis in. Um, and so I was really interested in how stress affected the brain. That was just something I found inherently interesting when I went to grad school. And that was what Daniela Kaufer studied in her lab. And I rotated there and I really liked it. I liked her style of mentorship. I liked what I was allowed to work on in the lab because whatever you work on in graduate school depends on your advisor approving of it um, and being willing to fund it because they're the ones who have the, they have the purse strings, so to speak. So they have to be willing to fund it with their grant money. Um, and so I, I just really enjoyed the lab. And when I joined the lab, it was actually quite small, but grew over time and created more of that lab environment that you see now with, with more people. Um, as far as your question about the lab environment, what it's like to be in a lab, it's, it's a very interesting workplace. I mean, it is a workplace. Even though you're a graduate student, it's a job. You, you show up every day. You, have, you need to produce things. You need to produce data. And while you're learning as you go, it's, it's a lot about productivity and, and creating manuscripts that can be published into the scientific literature. Um, but it also has some of that flexibility of you're also a student. So you're taking classes. You're sometimes teaching classes. And you have a wide range of personalities and people. You have undergraduates who are in their lab. Other graduate students, you have staff technicians, so people who are working in the lab as staff, so doing this for a living. You have postdoctoral fellows, and everyone's in a different phase of their career and often comes from very different backgrounds, and usually they're all really fun. <laughs> that's the overall, that's been my, the rule I've found in scientific labs is everyone is there because they love science in some way. And was there something about the connection of stress to the brain that interested you most? Was there something you you were interested in um, solving about it or discovering about it? What if you if you kind of remember what it was that initially sparked that eagerness to follow that path? What initially interested me about stress in the brain is that for humans, for the most part, stress is something that we psychologically define. So it's not a set thing. It's not like an electrical shock of a certain amplitude. For humans, it's, I have an exam coming. Some people have an exam coming, and they define that as incredibly stressful. Other people describe it as only mildly stressful, or maybe not stressful at all. Maybe they're not worried. They, they, don't, they don't think they'll have a problem with it. So your brain is, is qualifying something, but the end result on both the rest of your brain and your body can be so different. Um, chronic stress, so chronically feeling like you are overwhelmed, is incredibly bad for both your brain and your physical health. It can lead to heart disease, and it also causes impairments in cognitive function. But again, this is not just like a set stimulus. This is something you've decided that this that you are experiencing chronic stress, because the things around you you find stressful. And then that's feeding back and telling your brain and body how to function. And I thought that was fascinating, and I wanted to know how that happens. How am I telling myself to become ill when I'm experiencing too much stress? How am I telling myself to become better when I move beyond that stress when I figure out ways to relax and to control it. And did you know enough, uh, were you further along in your studies at that point that you understood well enough how the hippocampus and the amygdala worked as far as with uh, spatial memory and other types of memory where there was that looping system of sort of uh, quantifying your environment and then making a blueprint that then was followed the next time? Yeah, so those the the work on the hippocampus and its role in in defining memory and defining your spatial awareness in the world uh, that was worked out long before I went to grad school by people who long predate me. So we, I knew the hippocampus was very important for memory, and that the amygdala is very important for overlaying emotional information on that memory. So uh, the amygdala is a really important brain uh, region for any kind of emotion you experience. Um, that's sort of where all your emotional information comes from in the brain in some sense. And the hippocampus there is encoding your memories and particularly emotional memories, happy or uh, fearful ones tend to be encoded more strongly than say a neutral memory. So and the amygdala is what's helping lay that down. Let's do a quick hippocampus 101. Um, it's like, name 
comes from Latin for seahorse and yes. kind of because of its shape. But what, what are some of its other physical properties and its location and relationship to uh, maybe, let's say, depression? So the hippocampus is a, a sort of a, a small curvature struct, curve structure in your brain. It has a number of different cellular regions that all talk to each other. So circuits of cells that all are make little circuits, you know, three or four cells that all talk to each other uh, in sequence. And it's important for laying down your memories. It's also important for emotional regulation. So emotion and memory are very closely tied. And if you think about it, they kind of have to be. If you can't come up with a reason that one memory should be stronger than another, you would just encode everything equally. I would remember just as well what I had for breakfast this morning as the fact that there's a particular intersection on my way to work where cars come out of nowhere and try to run me down. You know, I don't need to remember what I had for breakfast this morning, but I do need to remember that intersection so that I keep my eyes open and don't get run over by a car. So we need that emotional information on top of it. The hippocampus participates in this emotion and this emotional regulation. And this is where depression comes in. There's a lot of evidence that depression negatively impacts the hippocampus. So depression, of course, is you know, persistent, uh, persistent depressed mood. So being persistently sad or blue for long periods of time. So we're not talking about you know, temporarily a day or two where you're not feeling great, but long-term dysregulation of your mood. It involves things like loss of appetite, sleep disruption, um, apathy. It's a, it's a really debilitating disease for those who suffer of it. And disturbing proportions of the population will experience depressive episodes in their lifespan. And during depression, there's a lot of evidence that the hippocampus is changing shape in ways that are not making you better, but perhaps making you more ill and impairing the hippocampal ability to help regulate your emotion and things like depression, anxiety. And so the emotion in that relationship, is it the, the type of emotion or the level of emotion that kind of signals the brain to say, okay, this is important. This is something we need to remember. Um, it's a little bit of both. It, so it's both type and level of emotion. So the, our best memories, the things we encode the best are fearful ones. Um, so that's going to get the loudest noise. Uh, the best example of that are things like flashbulb memories that people have of uh, large traumatic events. So things, uh, certain generations remember JFK being shot. Everyone remembers where they were. They have these distinct memories. It was such a, a fearful and stressful moment that that memory has received special attention compared to all the other moments that surrounded that. Um, more In more modern times, uh, 9-11. I remember exactly where I was when I heard what had happened on 9-11, when I heard what had happened that morning when I was at school, actually. So I have this incredibly detailed memory of who told me about it, what they were holding, where I was standing. If you, what, what was I doing at a similar time the day before? No idea. <laughs> no clue. I don't, even, I don't even remember if I was at school or not. So that's a, these stressful, fearful memories seem to get extra volume in your brain and extra, uh, extra stringency in how they're encoded and how long you can keep them and how detailed they are. And but happy memories too. Yeah, I was going to say, too. and even like, stressful in like, and, and we'll talk about that more deeply, but stressful in, you know, positively or, or in a detrimental way, because I was going after I was looking through some of the materials, I was going through my memories and thinking, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit lately and wanted to do a show on it. Like, why is it that one thing that I remember out of the thousands or millions of moments, you know, in, in a relationship with that person or living in a certain place or at college? And, you know, some of them like 9-11, that, that makes perfect sense, right? That we're going to remember about that. But some of these you're thinking, was it more stressful or emotional in a way that I hadn't realized until now looking back upon it, either in a, a yeah. positive or negative way? Yeah, so anything that gives you sort of a mild boost of stress is going to increase the, the strength of that memory. That's one of the features of the system. So short, brief bursts of stress actually improve your memory. Now, if you're under chronic low-grade stress, so if you had say, you know, exams are a great example. I'm a college professor, so I teach students. And exams are a great example. You know, things that final exam week is a really long week. They don't have really good detailed memories of that whole week, even though the whole week they're feeling kind of stressed. So chronic low-grade stress is not what gives you enhanced encoding. It's, it's peaks of stress, so brief peaks. This is kind of how the system is meant to work. Remember things that are important that activated that stress system. And that could be positive stress as well. So there's a lot of evidence that something, you know, a mild positive stressor that you find stimulating. So we often call a positive stressor something we find stimulating or challenging. We, we phrase the wording different, but it's relying on much the same system. And it will, it, it will cause an increased laying down of memories for those brief bursts. 
So let's connect that for a moment with the the new era of study in cognitive neuroscience and neurogenesis, and and not maybe that new, but but certainly changing with all the new ways of studying it. Um, as far as the positive stress and the negative stress, and that they both are doing something to the brain, they're they're signaling it. Um, but with negative stress, that can reduce the production of the new neurons. Is that accurate? But with positive mm -hmm. kinds of stress, that might actually make them grow? Yep, that is, that's the general idea, yes. So how many neurons are we talking about? And so <laughs> how much action is going on in, on a daily basis? Um, so the, the number is actually, compared to the number of neurons you already have in your brain, is uh, frighteningly small. It, it's not a lot. And this has been a big challenge for my field is to explain, okay, you have these new neurons. We think they're important. It seems really significant that you're getting new neurons in a part of your brain that's making new memories, you know, new neurons, new memories. Maybe this goes together. It seems like it should. Um, but there's so few of them. How can they possibly be making a difference? And a lot of the work that's been done over the past couple of decades has been showing how this relatively small pool of cells, um, maybe a few thousand per day, something like that, um, this relatively small pool of cells is actually disproportionately recruited by new memories that you're forming. So there are millions of neurons hanging out in your hippocampus. But in response to some sort of event that you're trying to encode, those new neurons are preferentially brought into the circuitry. They are being told, come be part of this memory, more so than the old fuddy-duddy neurons that have been there since you were born. So that's one of the keys. They're a very low population number, but they seem to be incredibly able to participate in circuits. And part of that depends on their inherent physiology. They kind of follow a, they follow a developmental trajectory. So a new neuron is born. And for a little while, it doesn't really do much. It has to mature and become functional. And, and then once it's functional, it, it starts hooking up into the circuitry of the brain and starts talking to other cells. And during this time, it's what we call incredibly plastic. It's very malleable. Compared to the old fuddy-duddy cells that are around it, these new neurons have an increased ability to form connections. So I kind of think of it as a parallel of even like human development, right? So you have a, a time in childhood where you can't really do much with the external world. But then there's a period where you're, say, an adolescent, a young adult, where you are particularly able to new, learn new things, particularly able to pick up new challenges. And then as you get older, your ability to do that or willingness to do that drops over time. Um, these new neurons are a lot like that. They, they're really plastic and will form lots of new connections and become parts of memories during this peak of their, their sort of maturing process, and then they eventually become in, indistinguishable from all the older neurons. And it's not that they die and don't work, they still work, they're just not quite as uh, flexible in terms of what they will do, and who they will connect with, and who they'll talk to in the brain. Kind of makes sense as far as the, the circuitry systems already been built up, right? And so then you just need not as many of these neurons to then go have this vital impact on this system that already exists. Yeah. So there's a lot of thought that uh, this is somewhat a key to how our memory, getting these new memories into our brain, how it can work. So if you have a circuitry that's already completely hooked up, uh, it might be difficult to rearrange it every time you, you need a new memory, to completely rearrange it, to take all the existing neurons and rearrange them. By adding new neurons, you sort of create this fresh batch that can, that can start forming connections and layer on top of a system that already exists. And so that's one of the arguments people make for why these new neurons might be good and important. And is there an accepted theory on what the overriding goal of the entire system is? This would be pretty much the purpose of life, maybe. But as far as like when you're studying this in science, like is there an idea that the, the, the circuitry in the system is all leading the individual toward something? I mean, is it, is it still sort of based on the idea of survival, that that's, uh, that's what much. it's all geared towards? Yeah, I mean, we have a brain that has for better or worse, evolved for survival for us. And laying down accurate and reliable memories, uh, that's, that's going to increase our survival. Our ability to learn from the past and to anticipate the future is one of the keys to our species' success and to our proliferation across the planet. That is one major thing. If we can remember the past, we can remember it well, we can communicate it to others, and we can use that information to change our future behavior in ways that are in some ways more complex than a lot of other animals species can do. Um, that being said, other animals also have hippocampi, also form memories, of course, and also can learn from the past. Um, so, yeah, the idea is just general survival. We need those memories to tell us 
what happened before so we can figure out what to do next. So a little bit later in the show, I want to talk about um, a little more deeply about old brain, new brain, and sort of where science is on that right now and the relationship between the two. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit about what what um, activities stimulate neurogenesis, both in the positive camp and the negative mm-hmm. camp. Um, basically, anything that you think of as being good for you uh, probably stimulates neurogenesis. It follows very closely with what's beneficial for things like cardiovascular health or general health or cognitive health. So examples are exercise, very reliable stimulator of adult neurogenesis. So it's not just good for your body, it's good for your brain. Um, cognitive stimulation, so learning new things. That's a stimulator for adult neurogenesis. Um, let's see, living in, in what animals we call an enriched environment, but it basically means a complex environment. So a complex environment where things change regularly. So if you just live uh, in your apartment and you never leave and nothing ever changes, that would be a pretty deprived environment. If you're going out into the world and interacting with new people and things every day that's more enriched, that's going to stimulate your neurogenesis. That's sort of the, the happy side of things. Uh, very brief stresses will stimulate neurogenesis. It will stimulate those new neurons. On the sad side of things, you have things like chronic stress, which will suppress them. It'll make them be born less frequently, so you'll get a big decrease. Um, most things you think about being bad for you, chronic alcohol exposure, uh, a very sedentary lifestyle, living in a deprived environment, as well as a number of uh, neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's disease and just regular aging. So we have a steady decrease in the number of new neurons that we're getting pretty much from young adulthood on out. Um, you kind of peak in your, your adolescence just about for humans. And from there on out, you're getting fewer and fewer of these every year. Now you're still having it well into old age. It's still happening. You're still getting new neurons. It's just the rate is not as high as it was when you were younger, most likely. And where do the concept of enjoyment fit in? Like it makes sense that stimulation, right? Something I saw it said foods, you know, that are good for you, but also crunchy foods or the manner of eating. And that would go in with the idea of a a more stimulating environment, right? We're stimulating the environment and we're waking things up. Mm -hmm. We also need though enough sleep, right? And so sleep is more thought of as restorative or meditating, right? Which could be um, thought of as to produce more neurons as well. And those are both more like less stimulating <laughs> activities. So are they, are they, do you have a sense of where they fit in or is it because they're restorative or is something actually happening that is stimulating, but in a quiet way? Um, so in, the, in terms of sleep, sleep is an incredibly complex thing. We still don't entirely understand why we sleep. We know we need to, If you deprive a human of sleep, it will literally kill them if you do it for long enough. Um, But we still haven't figured out quite what's going on that's so essential that can't be captured, say, just by, you know, lying down and closing your eyes, but without falling asleep. We can't figure out what it is about sleep that's restorative. So, yes, chronic sleep deprivation certainly does decrease adult neurogenesis. I actually don't know the specific mechanism by which that happens. Um, What's the actual biology that's going on? So it would seem like that, so then sleep there, good amounts of sleep, should increase neurogenesis relative to not enough sleep. So is it that sleep is restorative or that it somehow isn't participating in enrichment? And actually, I'm not sure. Sleep is such a mystery. Why it is that we do it, what's happening while we're doing it, what about it is essential. It's so difficult to pin down. I'm not sure what it is about sleep that seems to be so essential for neurogenesis beyond the fact that it seems to be essential for every other healthy system in your brain and body. And, and how does the emotional element fit in? I'm thinking about somebody who is maybe a, very much an introvert or someone else who's very much an extrovert or maybe even a thrill seeker. That Are they each going to need different levels of stimulation, do you think, for their individual um, physicality to stimulate, positively stimulate neurogenesis? Absolutely. Most likely. I mean, there's not a good way to test this in humans, but I w- based on the biology of the system, absolutely. Because again, stress and stimulation, these are all words that we use to describe things in ways that we categorize them psychologically in our own heads. But they, one, one, something that's stressful to one person and really unmanageable could be stimulating and fun to another. Roller coasters, I think, are a great example. Some people think roller coasters are amazing fun things, really great thrill. Other people think they're terrifying and terrible and putting them on a roller coaster would be an incredibly stressful experience for them. If you made them ride roller coasters all day, 
that'd be basically a day of chronic stress all day long versus someone else who chooses to do that because they think it's fun. So depending on your personality, depending on uh, even just your phase in life, what kind of day you're having, the kind of resources you feel like you have at your fingertips right that moment, uh, you're going to you're going to categorize things differently, and that's going to dramatically affect how they end up impacting your brain and your health. All right, we're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more deeply about what's actually happening when new neurons are born and then how they're actually communicating to each other through the electrical spikes. This is KBPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Speaking, and I'm speaking to neuroscientist Elizabeth Kirby, and we are talking primarily about the hippocampus and the effects that positive and negative stress have on it. And is that how you guys frame it? Do you do you call it positive and negative, or is there some other wording? Since we're working, our work is all done in rodents, it's hard to say positive or right. negative in a rodent. So we usually qualify it in terms of something where that we can we can quantify more more easily, such as length or duration and also severity. Um, so there's different kind of stressors that will be uh, worse or better for a rat as far as we can tell. Anything that involves real physical pain is going to be pretty bad. We don't tend to use those very much. We mostly use things that we call mild stressors and that are short duration often. So a mild stressor for a rodent might be putting them in a confined space for a little while. So for a couple hours. So the confined space, the rodents don't like confined spaces, but there's nothing physically painful about it. So they're, they're a little worried. They're not very happy about the confined space. So they're a little stressed, but not extremely so. So we often talk about specifically what stressor do we use? How long does it last? And we can measure our idea of approximately how stressful it is by looking at their stress hormone levels. And how quickly are the changes in the stress hormone level associated with changes in the... Um neuron firing level in the brain? So there's a, there's a couple of different phases to the process. So when a, a new neuron is added to the brain, it first has to be born. So it's born, it divides from a, a stem cell. Stem cell divides and gives you a new cell that will become a neuron. The process of becoming a neuron takes weeks, however. And stress can act anywhere in that process. It can act uh, in the division process of making that new cell that will become a neuron. It can affect how quickly it becomes a new neuron, it can affect whether or not it becomes a new neuron, whether it dies or becomes some other cell type maybe in the brain. And then finally, once you have the new neuron, stress can affect whether or not that neuron is firing and connecting to the circuitry. And so there's different answers all along the, to, to your question, all along that trajectory. So at the very beginning with cell division, so making that new cell that will become a neuron someday, Within a matter of hours, you can impact the rate of cell division. You can make the cells divide faster or slower, which will end up giving you more or less new potential neurons hanging out in the hippocampus of the brain. And then all throughout the process of becoming a neuron, you could add stressors, and that can also impact whether or not it will become a new neuron. And one of the things that we found in a recent study in our lab is that a brief stressor when the new neuron is born, so right when it's just becoming a cell that's destined to be a neuron, it isn't even a neuron yet, can impact how that neuron functions weeks later. So we do a brief stressor at the very beginning and then looks weeks later at neurons that were born right around the time of that stress. And there's something that happened in the birth of those cells or in their maturation that they're somehow tagged to be actually more active. So if it's a brief stress, these neurons several weeks later are actually functioning a little bit better than they would otherwise. And so how, that's approximately how, it can how are you following the process like are you visually able to see these things happening or how, how are you detecting the changes um so we have to look we have to look in their brains after after we uh sacrifice them the rats so uh -huh. we have to sacrifice the rats and take their brains out unfortunately we can't image it live it's one of the reasons we have to use rats to do this you can't do humans because you can't take human brains out they, they need them um so we take out the rat brain we can look okay immediately after the stressor what's going on with cell division. And we can see this under a microscope, what cells are dividing versus not dividing. And we can quantify it and count them. And then we can take a different set of rats and, okay, say, give them the same stressor and two weeks later, look at the cells that were born right around that time of that stressor. We can mark them when the stressor's happening and look at them two weeks later in those brain slices and ask, okay, are they turning on? Are they expressing proteins that tell us that they're active? So that's how we can end up quantifying it. We have to take uh, tiny rat brains, we slice them into very, very thin slice them, slices, 
put them on microscope slides and label them for different proteins and look at them under the microscope. And so a huge amount of the study of memory and how it works in the brain was actually done, I found it so interesting, um, a human who was studied for what, maybe 50 years of his life, someone who had had epilepsy back in the 50s and had they had taken out uh, part of his or his entire hippocampus, right? And then studied mm -hmm. him for the next 40 or 50 years and then did actually yeah. later dissect his brain into, into 2,000 pieces and map it all. Um, and with that, what did they learn about how the basics of memory are working in both spatial and autobiographical memory? So the, the patient you're talking about is, he was known as H.M. before his death for to be anonymous. After that, we, his name came out as Henry Meliason. So he was, uh, I think, 27 years old, and he had intractable epilepsy, so seizures that nothing could solve. Um, and one of the ways that seizures were dealt with back then, and still are now, is to try and uh, resect or remove the brain regions where the, the bad electrical activity is originating or traveling, traveling through. And so at the time, we didn't really know what the hippocampus did, and that seemed to be the focus of his seizures, where a lot of them were emerging. So surgeons removed both of his hippocampi. You have one on each side of your brain. Um, and so they removed both of them, along with some other relatively large chunks of his, of his brain. He lost a lot of brain tissue in that surgery. And when he woke up, the seizures were cured. So in that sense, this was a great success. Um, but it took a moment to realize that his major problem was that though his memories from before the surgery were largely intact, he, he knew who he was, he knew he was Henry Melias, and he knew where he came from, he wasn't able to form new memories, uh, particularly new autobiographical memories, the, the word that you used. And by autobiographical memories, it's sort of the narrative of your life. So if you walk in and you meet someone, and they leave the room and they come back two minutes later, you remember that you met them. You don't reintroduce yourself. You know, you remember that you just met them. Not so with HM. So HM was meeting everybody for the first time every day, pretty much for the rest of his life. Um, he was unable to encode these new memories. And this is one of the first clues we had that the hippocampus was really important for that kind of memory, for these both new memories. The old ones were still intact, right? But the new ones weren't there. And that it was particularly those autobiographical memories. So you might then ask, so what, what are the other memories? I keep saying autobiographical, like there's, there's other things, and there are. There's a lot of memories that are things like procedural memories. This is like riding a bike, skills that you have. Um, you don't, may not necessarily remember when you learned how to ride a bike or how you learned how to ride a bike, but you know how to ride a bike. Remembering when or how, that would be autobiographical. Knowing how to, to actually ride the bike, that's a procedural memory. So HM could learn skills. He had no memory of learning them. But he could learn them. You could teach him motor skills. He would get better at, better at them, and he would stay very good at them. He didn't think he'd ever done it before. If you came in five minutes later and asked him to do something again, that was a very complex motor task. But he, So he had some kinds of memory, but this very specific impairment that, at least for humans, is a really dramatic one, not being able to keep the narrative of your life straight and remember from day to day what's going on or, or accumulate new autobiographical memories is really debilitating for humans. So he spent the rest of his life largely institutionalized and uh, I guess one of the big things that made him such an object of study is that he was pleasant about it. Yeah, he there seemed like a very were, willing participant. <laughs> yeah, so he was. He was very willing to, to meet this. You know, he had one doctor who worked with him for many, many decades and was willing to meet that doctor again and again every day and do tasks. And there are other patients that might have been similar to HM but were not so pleasant, so they were harder to study. So a big key was that he was willing to do this and was totally amiable about the whole process. So the hippocampus has a right side and a left side, and when you're studying it, it does this. Does the idea of this important distinction between right brain and left brain still exist within science, and does it exist within your studies? Um, within my studies, it does not typically exist because the rodents that I study don't show much difference between right and left side of the brain. Uh, that's a, a largely human thing. Um, so right side versus left side of the brain is definitely still something that is studied in humans. I will say that the, it's based on averages. So the idea is that you have, you know, your, your right side of your brain, which is more like the creative side, and your left side, which is more like the analytical side. That's sort of the rough idea that, that most people approximate it at. But these are all averages um, across many populations. So not everyone shows this split between the two sides. Some people show more even distribution of their cognitive capacities between the two hemispheres. Some people show the opposite of that. So it's, it's not a, a complete given, just like most people are right-handed, but there's a certain percentage that are left-handed. So it's, 
it's, it's similar to that. It seems like an area that is going to change a lot in the next couple of decades as far as the relationship between the parts of the brain and also the relationship of the brain with parts of the body and, and, and the, the idea of the mind-body and emotion connection. Um, I remember reading recently about a study that had determined that, yes, the brain actually was connected with the immune system, whereas prior they thought it was a kind of very separate entity. And kind of as a person in the world, you think, like, yeah, that seemed pretty obvious. Like, it seems <laughs> like they're connected. But science seems so so focused on it that he said the reason they hadn't determined it earlier was because they weren't even looking, because it was taken as such a given that, that it was a separate a separately operating system. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like your approach and within your lab, um, you're more open to the idea that there are all these connections that maybe we don't understand, but that they exist? Um, I mean, more open, perhaps the general population, yes, than other scientists. I, I don't think I would, I don't think I would have the the ego to say that. And <laughs> I'm more open. Scientists are an incredibly open breed of people. I mean, all of our job is to find the truth in the biology and in the experimentation. So on average, most labs are open to finding new ideas and having the core of their ideas shaken if, if it needs to be so. And especially if it's based on sound data. Um, I certainly aspire to be very open to questioning every assumption I have and tearing it apart. If the data says it should be torn apart. (laughs) And so with your research, how much are you focused on, I mean, definitely at this point, you've shown that clearly that, and and probably prior to, to your own lab and the other labs, that there is effect of stress onto this area of the brain and to the development of the neurons. So what's next? What do you want to discover or what do you want to prove at this point? So what I'm working on now and that I find the most exciting is I'm, I'm studying the neural stem cells in the brain still and looking at how they might be beneficial for recovering from brain injury. So moving a little bit beyond stress, actually, and looking at actual injury. So things like seizures or stroke or trauma and figuring out we have these stem cells and they could be helping us recover. It seems like they're not in many cases. Your brain brain injuries tend to be awfully permanent in many ways. It's really hard to get your brain to in any way recover from an injury that is severe as like a stroke or trauma. Um, And so trying to figure out ways that we can encourage these stem cells that we already have, they're in there, they're in our brain, and they actually survive a lot of these traumas, a lot of these injuries, they survive them. But how can we encourage them to sort of be better versions of themselves, better stem cells to help the brain recover and replace what it has lost? And so that's what we're studying right now. And I think it's a really exciting area because we're talking about one of the one of the hardest organs in the body to fix. You know, if you break your leg, you get a cast, it heals. If you, even if you have liver disease, you can potentially get a liver transplant. You cannot get a brain transplant. In fact, if you did, you'd be a different person. You probably wouldn't consider that a successful surgery. <laughs> um, so how do you go about studying that? I mean, is it the area where its role gets designated that it's the point where it gets sort of assigned a certain job in, within the system or within the circuitry? There's a lot of different levels where the stem cell, between stem cell and repairing the brain are controlled. So there's, you know, could we create new neurons to replace neurons we lost? That's one big question. And the major issue there seems to be the stem cells are there. It's just after an injury, they are not making new neurons to replace the numbers that are lost from whatever whatever the injury was. And there's a lot of ways that could be at the cell division stage, like we talked about before. Mm-hmm. So when cells are dividing, it could be in the becoming a neuron after the cell's been born, becoming a neuron. It could be in the survival or in the decision to become a neuron versus another cell. Or it could even be in some cases, there's a lot of evidence that new neurons are made after an injury like a seizure, but they're not quite right. They don't hook up the way they should. They migrate to the wrong places in the brain. They send their connections all hilter-skilter in places they shouldn't be. So how can we stop them from doing that and encourage them to, you know, go be a rank-and-file neuron and go be where they should and replace connections that were lost and replace uh, circuitry that was lost? So depending on the injury, the, the problem can be at many different steps. And so each injury you have to approach and try and figure out how do we, how do we fix this and how do we help these cells be better? And do you, at this point, understand in science, like, how the cells 
have a designated memory or like an intention as far as or like marching orders. <laughs> it's like, okay, now, you know, once you're, you're born and you developed and now you're a neuron, you know, you're going to be in this area and then you're going to, your job is to do this. You got to light up when this happens and then you got to send out all these electrical signals to these parts of the brain to let them know whatever they're meant to let them know. Like, is that sort of fairly well understood within your research? Um, there's parts of it that are well understood. For the most part, no, we, we don't understand it. If we understood it, it'd be a lot easier to fix when it goes wrong. Um, there are hints. I mean, we know that a new neuron has to form connections or it will die. So we know it has to become part of circuitry or it just will not survive. That's one area that can be addressed is, does it, does it become part of the circuit? And whether it becomes part of the circuit can be influenced both by the cell itself. Is it expressing the right proteins? Is it, is it moving to the right place? And also the external environment. So what kind of signals are around to help it connect to other things? Is there enough activity to connect into? Or is the activity chaotic? Um, and it can't really, there's no hope for this cell figuring out a way to integrate into the circuitry that's there. Um, so depending on uh, what's going on around the cell, what's going on inside the cell, a lot can go wrong. And we just, it's incredibly complex. and We don't understand it yet entirely. If we did, it'd be a lot easier to tell them what to do. And so let's go back a little bit and maybe paint the picture of, let's use the spatial um, memory for a minute. Uh, there was a TED Talk about how you find your car, your bicycle, where you parked it, and the sort of pictorial mapping of these neurons that are paying attention to the environment and the boundary cells and the place cells and then creating these grid cells and then everything lighting up and almost creating sort of an internal map and then guiding you through when you come back to find your car or bicycle as far as sending signals like yes yes it's kind of like a game of hot cold um, <laughs> and and so could you describe that a little bit and then maybe we'll connect that with the research that you've done in affecting the cells with stress and then end up where, where you are now. Yeah. So what the phenomenon you're talking about is a thing called hippocampal place cells. So there are cells that fire when you're in a particular location in space that you know about. So once you've been in an environment that you're familiar with, so say I'm, you know, I'm sitting in my office right now in my desk chair and I, I know my office, I know this corner of my office and there are neurons in my hippocampus that know this corner too. And they're firing whenever I'm in this corner. And when I move away from it, they stop firing. When I come back to it, they start firing again. And those are called hippocampal place cells. And they were found in, in rodents. So rodent experiments let us figure out that these existed. So you put rodents on a little track where they can run around in a triangular track. And what they found is recording from neurons live in the rodent's heads. It's using actual electrodes implanted in the brain that in certain corners, there were clusters of cells that would fire and then stop firing in the next corner of the track that there were different neurons that would fire. So there's, there's neurons that seem to be linked in space uh, very tightly to these spatial locations. Um, not every neuron in your hippocampus is like that though, right? If you have autobiographical memory, that depends on neurons in your hippocampus. The fact that I've, you know, that I've met you, Ellie, and uh, I will remember that. And that's part of my autobiographical memory. That's not necessarily a memory that's tied to a place in space though. So there's, there's a variety of different cells and those place cells are one of them. Um, how exactly those cells know how to hook up, know how to uh, fire in particular places a little mysterious. So how do you pick which cell? How does a cell pick? This is my corner. We don't really know how a cell picks. This is my corner. Um, that's a little mysterious. And as far as adding a new neuron into the circuitry, so thinking about the kind of stuff that I study, uh, that's even more mysterious. So if a new neuron gets added, does it decide to become a place cell? Does it decide to become an autobiographical cell? And which memory does it decide to be a part of? It probably depends a lot on timing, for one, because that neuron needs to be in that really plastic phase, that really sort of super uh, flexible phase where it's immature. So it'll depend on timing, what happens, but w exactly what kind of memory it's going to end up supporting uh, is sort of mysterious, and we don't really know how that works. I'd love to. It'd be a great thing to know. Yeah, so is it going where there's a, a sort of a... Um empty space or is it predetermined as to what it's going to develop into and do they once they are in their assigned areas um do they shift at all or then they pretty much stay those kinds of cells and are they are they different like are they can you 
tell, do they just operate differently or do they, do they mature into actually somehow looking like different cells if they're a place cell versus a, an auto, a cell that's in the autobiographical memory? Uh, as far as I know, no one's ever looked at that, uh, whether for a new cell in particular, a new neuron that's being added, uh, figuring out what kind of memory it ends up supporting within the hippocampus. Um, the field is just not that far into it yet. We mo most recently have been able to show that these cells are activated uh, specifically by new memories that are formed around the time that they're in that plastic period. So it's, uh, it's, we're just not there yet in that, that level of detail, even in the rodent and in humans, it's, it's a long way from being able to see anything at a single cell level because in humans we can't really get at single cells in yes. humans. So, so really at the neuron phase, when they're, when they're mature neurons, are they identifiable or are they just identifiable based on what area of the brain they're in? Well, we can see that they are an immature neuron and we can see they're in a certain brain area, mm -hmm. but mostly if you just look at them under the microscope, there's at this point no telltale sign for what kind of memory it might be. One of the challenges being is that we can't see the neuron until we until we until we sacrifice right. the rodent, and by the time we sacrifice them, they're not really forming any memories. Yeah, and <laughs> is one of the challenges. has has your research shown that that stress um, is affecting the different areas of the brain fairly similarly, or are you guys mostly been focused on the hippocampus? So I myself have mostly been focused on the hippocampus, but stress does affect different areas of the brain differently. So all of those things, all the negative things that seem to happen in the hippocampus, uh, all like the impairment of function when you have chronic stress, the opposite actually happens in the amygdala. Amygdala function seems to increase with chronic stress. So chronic low-grade stress actually makes the amygdala function a little bit better, which may be part of the problem, actually, is it's pumping and, out and negative emotions. And does it actually grow as, as um, in opposite to how the hippocampus may shrink with constant stress? I'm not sure if it grows well enough that you could see it at the, the level of the whole brain area, but individual cells certainly do increase uh, their branching. So neurons have sort of these tree-like branches that extend from them, and it's kind of their antenna taking in the signal from other cells. They get more branching of those cells in the amygdala. The hippocampus has the opposite. Those branches retract and shrivel away in response to chronic stress. The amygdala you know, stands up and says, I'm in charge now. <laughs> Yeah, we are extremely we're, we're all having a bad threatened. Day here, so everyone's yeah. going to listen to me. Yeah, and that goes back to what we were talking a little bit about this idea of the old brain, new brain, and and the the different ways they they maybe function. And and um, is that still a pretty solid uh, theory as far as the relationship with the old brain and and the new brain, newer brain? Uh, I, I'm not sure what you mean by old brain and new brain. Could you explain uh, okay, so more? good. So then that's, that, that answers my question. So okay. a lot of things you're talking about, people sort of refer to the amygdala as the old brain, so our survival brain. And I was just listening to, to um, a book on tape talking about relationships and sort of blaming the old brain seems to get blamed in a lot of different areas for our problems. And in this was that maybe we don't choose the best partners because we might be choosing it based on um, old brain survival as and that the amygdala will sort of signal, um, you know, throw out stress, 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 and kind of take over our, our operation versus our conscious mind kind of thinking through what might be the best choice. I guess really the flight or fight um, reactions. Okay. Yeah, so I would say in, in my field, we old brain, new brain, these are not really terms that we use. We talk about individual brain regions and how they can drive activity and end up driving choices and behavior. Um, but old brain versus new brain is not a division that, at least in my field, comes up terribly often. I'm guessing by old, they mean more evolutionarily old, yeah. more primordial. Yeah. So that's more, okay. So, yeah, we that's not really a division that we look at so much. Your brain is, is incredibly interconnected. And though I study the hippocampus and I think of it as very separate, it, it's talking to all the rest of the brain. It's talking to the amygdala. It's talking to your cortex in a human, your cortex is an amazingly powerful thing that has all sorts of control about what, what's happening underneath it. Um, so yeah, we tend to talk about specific brain regions and who they're talking to and how they're influencing behavior on the whole, rather than uh, what level of evolution a particular structure derives from in the brain. 
And so I guess the cortex then would be in that mapping considered more the new brain, right? Like where the long-term memories are stored, where analysis is going on, rational analysis. Would that be more yeah. in, the, in the cortex? Yeah, that's more in the cortex. So that's currently the thought about where the memories are actually stored, right? HM, his hippocampus is gone, but he still has memories from before. Uh, so the thought is that me your memories are long-term stored throughout your cortex. And a lot of what we think of ourselves as being human, our personalities, our impulse control, um, our more complex processes are in our cortex and in particular in our frontal cortex. There's actually another fascinating patient in neuroscience. So HM is a very fascinating patient who lost his hippocampus and had memory impairments. Another fascinating patient um, is a guy named Phineas Gage. So Phineas Gage uh, was part of a tunneling group, so a, a mining tunneling group, and his job was to tamp down explosives into long drilled holes in rock faces. And to tamp those down, you use a big long rod, and at the end you put some insulation so the rod doesn't directly touch the, the explosives, the gunpowder. Well, something went wrong with the insulation or something, and he managed to ignite a spark, which then caused an explosion, and that tamping rod, a big, long metal rod, shot back out of that hole and shot through just underneath his left eye and at a slight angle, then straight through the front part of his brain. Um, the remarkable thing is, if he had just died, no one would have ever heard of him, but he didn't die. He survived, even this was in the 1800s, even at the time, had a massive infection, managed to survive that as well. But afterwards he was a different person. So before the, the tamping rod accident, he was a relatively upstanding guy, very uh, sociable, everybody liked him. Afterwards, he became a carousing, gambling, ne'er-do-well with essentially no impulse control, would do anything that he thought sounded like a good idea at that moment, just drop of a hat. And this is what gave us one of those clues that, okay, that part of our brain, that front part of our brain is really important for our personality and our impulse control and, and our inhibitions and a lot of what we think makes us who we are and makes, you know, me who I am and you who you are. So I just drew a little circle. <laughs> I'm thinking about back to the original idea of stress and the effect it has on our hippocampus and on our, our, our bodies and our emotions and the, the whole um, interweaved reaction of the system. And so if... If our memories are created by, um, and typically you said it was like f fear or a strong emotion that was stimulated, and then these neurons are created and these memories and then long-term memories are created and stored in the cortex, and they are also associated with stress. Um, where do we kind of break that pattern when we have so many people living in sort of a constant state of anxiety and such a high level of depression? From the aspect of the brain, where do you think is the best way to start reducing that um, and so, somehow breaking the circle of that system? Mm-hmm. So I would say the easiest way, given that we are humans and we have the ability to talk to ourselves, we have an internal narrative, the easiest way to fix it is, is at the very source, is at that categorizing of deciding that whatever is going on is overwhelming. It is stressful. It is causing you anxiety. Um, that's, I mean, that's easier said than done, obviously. If everyone could just say, oh, I'm not stressed, problem solved, then life would be much easier. There are a lot of uh, behavioral techniques that are out there, workshops, books, all sorts of different ways of trying to behaviorally reduce your stress. And a lot of it has to do with this recategorizing your world. Um, so recategorizing the things that are happening is like, okay, this thing has happened. Am I going to spend time worrying about it? No. And that, that takes work. It takes training and it takes time. But I would also add to that that your propensity to experience stress or to categorize things as stressful is strongly shaped by your developmental environment. So there's a really fascinating area of research that looks at quality of maternal care in rodents and then the long-term effects on offspring in terms of how stress-resilient or responsive they are. And basically having a really good rat mom means that you're far more resilient to stressors that experimenters give you as a rat later on. So an adult rat who had a really good mom who spent a lot of time and attention on it is going to be way less likely to show negative effects of stress. So way less likely to be overwhelmed by the things that experimenters throw at them when they're an adult. 
versus a, a rat that as a baby had sort of a, a crappy mom, a mom who didn't pay attention to it, a mom who didn't spend time with it, and the rat version of things. That, that pup, when it grows up, is going to be a lot more susceptible to stress. Little stressors are going to cause way more negative impact. So though we can try to recategorize our stressors, there's a lot developmentally that's giving us tendencies one way or another. And that's going to make it harder to overcome for, more, for some people than others, depending on what their development was like. And not just in humans, we depend far more than on just our mothers. So we're talking parenting in general, your community, your schooling, your friends. It, it's far more complex for humans. Rats are a little simpler. It's mostly just about mom. Um, but for us, it's a lot more complex. Maybe with that, keep our hippocampus healthy with lots of sleep, exercise, eating good, crunchy, healthy foods, <laughs> minimizing alcohol, increasing sex, a happy hippocampus. And maybe in this last moment, if you could just tell us the goals for your lab um, in the next uh, year, five years, 10 years. Uh, I would say our goal is to figure out new ways that stem cells can help the brain heal and to train the next generation of scientists. So both scientific and training goals. All right. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking Today. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks. I, I really enjoyed it. All right. And hopefully you, you'll come back in, I don't know, what should it be? <laughs> Six months, a year, <laughs> two years? How will I know? <laughs> yeah, keep an eye out. Next time we have a paper that you think is interesting, feel free uh, to give me a all call. All right. All right. You're going to have to send it to me. Okay. Keep, keep me on your list. Okay, okay. Well, thank you so much. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I've been speaking with neuroscientist Elizabeth Kirby. This is KDPI 88.5 FM Ketchum.